And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome everybody to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell and we've got some excellent listener questions lined up for you today. Joining me to answer them is a man who is excited to executive produce our new reality series, The Real American Center Backs of London. It's Joe Lowry. Hi, Joe. Hey, Taylor. You know, we're deep in the process. Uh, I've started to talk to people. We're getting the logistics mm-hmm. nailed down. We're making progress, Taylor. I'm, I'm excited for this to roll out uh, tomorrow. Yeah, we're almost there. <laughs> We're going to get the pilot together. It will require us, I guess, going to England and getting all these different center backs on board. That's fine. Uh, and maybe a few of them getting transferred to England. CCV's got to come down from Glasgow. Speaking of <laughs> Glasgow, uh, joining us is a man who is slightly less excited to produce the real James Sands of Glasgow. It's Graham oh, Ruffin. Dear. Hi, Graham. <laughs> Hello, t- Taylor Rockwell. Yeah, I don't think many Rangers fans at this at this particular moment would watch that series. No. But, you know, he, he seems like a nice guy, so maybe maybe I'd be the one viewer in, in Scotland. A, a sympathy view for James Sands. <laughs> It's just you and James Sands hanging out. You're taking him to your barber, to the to the tackle store, <laughs> having an iron brew, having a meat pie. I would actually watch that show. I think I would. Yeah, I mean, we pretty much had a series like that with with Matt um, Matt Polster. That that's his name, right? He plays for yeah. the Revolution now. His his wife or partner, I believe, is some sort of YouTuber vlogger person, and so we got a lot of very peculiar Scottish experiences from two people who clearly weren't used to them at all but they they dealt much better with it than the Ramirez's up in Aberdeen who I think still believe that they're in I don't know Helmand province or something up there <laughs> so we've got we've got a couple different reality show uh, irons in the fire we'll see how those progress we've got as I said six questions to answer first we should talk a little bit about Whatever it is that's happening with U.S. soccer. Uh, to recap, on Tuesday, uh, U.S. M&T, I guess, former and maybe future manager uh, Greg Berhalter released a statement uh, confirming that he had had a domestic violence incident in the early 90s with his then-girlfriend, now-wife. He uh, kicked her in the legs. They reconciled. He got counseling uh, with the support of their families. They moved on. Uh, that was the, like, Sort of the meat of the story, the larger part would be that uh, an official from outside U.S. soccer, a person from outside U.S. soccer, excuse me, or persons, had contacted someone within U.S. soccer. And the, I think, allegation from Burhalter's side was that there was an attempt to, quote, take him down, uh, that basically it was a veiled threat of we will release this information publicly if he is renewed. Something along those lines is is the way I'm understanding it uh, from his perspective. Uh, yesterday, it was confirmed that the source of that information was Danielle Reyna, mother of Gio Reyna, uh, who, by her statement, 
uh, conveyed that information to Ernie Stewart after hearing that Greg Berhalter had made comments at uh, a summit meeting about her son. He didn't confirm that it was Gio Reyna when he made those comments, but he made it pretty clear that there was a player in camp who had been a problem. Uh, reading between the lines, I think Twitter picked up on that. She felt like that was unfair. So she had uh, a conversation with Ernie Stewart in which she made uh, the 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 incident from the 90s known. Arnie Stewart then commissions an independent investigation uh, as a response to this. uh, There was a press conference yesterday with U.S. soccer officials. I was on that one. They confirmed that the investigation is ongoing. They didn't confirm much else aside from that the investigation is ongoing. They really worked hard not to say anything and not trying to make light of a bad situation. But I will say it was three different people. It was Ernie Stewart. It was uh, Cindy Pablo Cohn, and I forget who the, the gentleman is, the CEO of U.S. Soccer. Uh, J.T. But it Batson. Was, yeah. Thank you. It was just this strange thing of all of them clearly had been told to say, if you don't want to answer, if you don't feel comfortable answering, say the investigation is ongoing, so we have to you know, wait for additional details. But it kept being the equivalent of like, Graham, do you want to take this one? Yeah, yeah, I got this one. Um, The investigation is ongoing, so we, it was just a really weird thing that they were throwing to each other to then make that statement. Uh, but yeah, not much else confirmed. I'm guessing we will continue to get more uh, details, especially as the independent investigation is concluded. Uh, Graham, that is my relatively succinct or attempt uh, at a succinct explanation of what has happened so far. Anything I left out? No, I think you pretty much covered what is an absolute bombshell of of a story. Um, When it dropped yesterday, we had uh, kind of spoken about theories that we'd seen on Twitter and within our Discord and so on. But nonetheless, when when one of the theories was confirmed that it was the Reynas and Daniel Reyna and Claudio Reyna that were behind essentially the, the, the blackmail attempt... That was incredible to read in in black and white on on ESPN. I think they were the first people to to report that, their story. And I have a lot of mixed thoughts on what is just a complete mess for US soccer at at, at this point. I guess I'm... My overwhelming feeling at the moment is just sadness that all this has has happened, that the the Reynas have made things so much more difficult for their son through all this. Maybe Gio's not, not blameless, obviously, through his conduct at the World Cup either. But nonetheless, to have had this very public airing of a, of a family trauma for Rosalind Berhalter in, in particular, I, I just hope she's getting support through this. She was asked this about is a, this that. Uh, sorry, Graham, just to jump in. She did get, they did get a question about that. And it was a very, again, sort of vague answer that support is available. I think they didn't want to get into specifics, okay. but there, there were concerns about that as well. So I think you're not alone in that one. Okay, well, as, as long as that is, is available to, to Rosalind Berhalter, then, then mm-hmm. that is good. They, uh, each Everyone has their own ways of, of dealing mm-hmm. with things like this. I, I just think it's a pretty sad state of affairs for US soccer. I have questions about the the type of connections, not just at the top of US soccer, but just in, in American soccer in yeah. general, at the top of the sport. It seems like things are very intertwined. I know that having th- close connections is obviously a good thing, but to a certain extent where... It all becomes a little bit, I don't know, Jerry Springer or something like that. Feel doesn't feel very healthy for for American soccer in general. So I think there will be maybe there are still things to come out of this. Obviously, the end of investigation is still ongoing, but I think there has to be a reevaluation of some things after this story. And it's kind of unclear where U.S. soccer in general goes from this point. Yeah, it's yeah. all it's all so messed up and crappy, and there aren't really any winners at all in this entire situation. What happened, and what I come back to, Graham, and you mentioned it, is you know what happened to Rosalind Berhalter isn't the Reina story to tell by any means. Like they don't have, and they should not have had 
the right to have her and, and all the people that were also affected by that relive that time from 30 years ago all over again, or to use that as a way, some sort of twisted way to defend Gio and her family's hurt feelings after Gio didn't play at the World Cup. Like it, all of this is so twisted and wrong. And there are, like I said, there are no winners. The fact that this had to play out, it didn't have to, but the fact that it is now playing out in the public eye. And I hope folks like us who are in positions to, to talk about this stuff and are going to talk about it to try to keep people updated and to help people understand what's going on. I hope people use their brains and, and try to have as much compassion. And I'm, I'm going to try to have as much compassion throughout this as possible. But I mean, all of this is, is just wrong and sad that, that it is happening in the first place. Uh, I will echo the sadness. I, I will be honest. I'll editorialize a little and I will say there's some anger there uh, because I feel like this information w- was a little bit weaponized. And to yeah. your point, I don't think this was anyone else's story to tell but Rosalind Berhalter's or, or maybe the Berhalter's, but but Rosalind Berhalter specifically. And I, I saw like maybe not the final nail for me when it comes to Twitter, but another nail in the coffin of Twitter was the discourse yesterday about was it blackmail versus whistleblower, which, first of all, I don't think we need to take sides. I don't think we need to like boil this down to terminology and then advocate for one term or the other. But the idea that this was some information that was heroically passed on by Danielle Reyna for the benefit of U.S. soccer because they needed to know is laughable in my mind. It, it, it's pretty clear to me that she was very upset that uh, that Greg Berhalter had publicly discussed a person who was very likely her son, that her son was getting some negative response to it. And, and so she felt the need to, to share this information in a way that feels aggressive to me it didn't feel like it was done with noble intent and so that makes me uh very angry and some of her statement sort of i think alleging that she was supportive and such a good friend to uh to rosalind berhalter and then at the same time to do this it it just it doesn't seem uh like you can sort of reconcile those two things so for me there's anger there but there is also just sadness as both of you have said it's I don't know what will happen with this, how it will all play out. We'll wait for the investigation. It's ongoing. Let me confirm that one more time. Uh, but like, if it is Greg Berhalter, if, ever, if he's cleared and he gets renewed, I said earlier he's the former manager because his contract has expired. Uh, they are The coaching search is ongoing. I think the press conference yesterday was also meant to be about the coaching search, but they couldn't really answer any questions about that either. Uh, so we, we will see what happens, and maybe Greg Berhalter does end up uh, getting another two years or four years, whatever it may be. And then we'll have to see what happens. Does he bring Gio Reyna back in? Is Gio Reyna wanting to come back in under Greg Berhalter? How does it like resolve between these two families who've been friends since I think for Berhalter and uh, Greg Berhalter and Claudia Reyna, what playing high school together? (laughs) Like they've, Mm. they've known each other for quite some time. So it's just, it's just a very strange situation and one that maybe, Definitely did not need to happen, but does also make you ask some questions about the structure yeah. of U.S. soccer. And and this is something that inevitably we will continue to talk about. There's a, there's a camp at the end of this month, of course, that there's players that will be selected to that camp without Greg Berlter being involved, or at least not in name, certainly. And there's tournaments later this year, and obviously Berlter's future itself has to be resolved. So this is something that... If, if the story doesn't run and run, at least the impact of it will be felt over a number of weeks and months. So you, I imagine we'll be having conversations related to this for, for, for some time. 
Yes, I think we will. Uh, So with that in mind, maybe let's put a pin in this one for now. Uh, Let's get to some of these listener questions. Let's change the tone up a little bit, shall we? Uh, Graham, coming to you for this first one from Robert Cordova. With Argentina winning the World Cup, does the Total Soccer Show think the Argentine Domestic League will get more viewing attention? Not from the general public. No, I don't think so. Because if you look through the 26-man squad that Argentina took to the World Cup and won the World Cup with... Only one player plays in Argentina, and that was 36-year-old third-choice goalkeeper Franco Armani. So unless there are a lot of World Cup fans out there with a thing for third-choice goalkeepers, I'd kind of be into that, actually. That feels like a, a reasonable pursuit. Those people are not going to be watching the, the Argentine Primera Division. So from for neutrals, there's not much from that team to draw them into the Argentine Primera Division, other than maybe catching a glimpse of the next generation before they make the move to Europe. And if I was the Argentine Domestic League, that is maybe something I would market. I saw the, the J-League in Japan put together a video almost as soon as Japan were knocked out of the World Cup. Obviously, they were one of the shock teams, the surprise packages of that tournament, making a good run. And the whole video was based on on that premise. We are producing the next generation of Japanese players. Come and watch a J-League game so that when the next World Cup rolls around in 2026, you already know who these who these guys are. So maybe maybe the Argentine Premier Division does that. But in terms of in, ter- in real terms, when we're talking about eyeballs on the league, TV audiences, I personally don't think there's going to be much of a difference. No. Um, the the answer might be different in terms of scouting and how many clubs are looking that bit closer at the Argent- Argentinian domestic league for new players. I'd argue scouts should have do- been doing this anyway, and, it, and it's not it's not like Argentina was some untapped resource before the World Cup. But nonetheless, having that success in Qatar maybe might just sharpen the focus of scouts working in Argentina a a little bit. Yeah, there's two words that come to mind for me when I think about Argentinian soccer, really, and maybe the status changing or not changing. The first is established, right? Soccer has been the sport in Argentina for a long time. Argentinians know about soccer. And, And the second word that comes to mind for me is saturated. I think in so many different ways, Soccer in Argentina is already relatively saturated in a way that, say, the U.S. had won the World Cup in 2022, right, dreams. But say that it happened, you know, I think that would have a meaningful impact on soccer's popularity in the U.S. in a way that Argentina, as a nation that has been competing in the upper levels of global soccer on the national level for a long, 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 long time, it would not have the same effect in Argentina as it would in a country like the U.S. or in a country like Japan. Graham, I love that that cross-example that you have there. People, and, and this is a generalization, yes, but a lot of people in Argentina already love soccer, right? It, it is the biggest sport there. I don't know that winning the World Cup when you enter as a favorite and the public is already generally aware will have the trickle-down effect all the way back to the league. Now, I would wager that it had some impact, right? But if we're talking about a meaningful increase in viewing attention and in you know the discourse, the general you know sports discourse in Argentina... I would wager that not a lot would change that. I think there are some things that could change how popular right, the Argentina Primera Division would be. Things like hosting a World Cup, I think, could do something for Argentina in that way and for the domestic league, or just a ton of money. right? I mean, ultimately, that is, that's what moves the needle here, and, and World Cup success can drive investment, which can then drive success in a domestic sense, but... I don't know that this particular World Cup win for Argentina, again, already established on the top level, a lot of saturation already in that market, would move the needle in a way that at least those of us on the outside would notice easily. 
Yeah, I think you, you have both done a, a good job of answering this one. The only thing I'll add is that if you did want to watch the Argentine uh, Primera, one reason to do so, because I think you're both right, that a lot of this team, you're going to have like an 18-year-old who has a good season and then makes the jump usually to Spain or Italy. Uh, and, and so I think you could watch... Uh, games just to see if anybody jumps out to you. Like, I think that is a, a way that could be fun is like tune into Velez versus racing because you never know if you're going to get the next like Anel Correa versus Rodrigo de Paul. Like, you, I think th- it's interesting to me that instead of it just being half this team came from Boca, half this team came from River, you certainly get plenty of Boca and River in this team. But there's lots of different teams represented from that like early stages and then they go on pretty quickly to play in Europe. But so you could watch some of these teams just to see if you spot that diamond in a rough to, to say, yeah, I watched like this player play for uh, uh, Newell's Old Boys, and now he's the new Lionel Messi. That would be appropriate. Uh, and Graham, I was going to ask, which league do you want to watch more of, having watched this past World Cup? But the answer is Japan. So uh, you've already done that really well. Nicely done, uh, both of you, with those answers. I tell you what, let's take a quick break, uh, and we'll come back with more listener questions in just a second. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. Joe, coming to you for this one from Matthew Cleveland. A bit of a lengthy one, but I wanted to include uh, his explanation because I think it's useful. Uh, Does winning a World Cup really improve your status as a player or just improve your career as a whole? For example, when Argentina won, you all said this cemented Messi as the best player of his era. While I don't necessarily disagree, I don't think that this win helps that argument. His ability as a player puts him in that conversation, not this win. Example, if Holland continues on on his trajectory, he could be the greatest player of his generation, but may never qualify for a World Cup group stage. Uh, His career may finish incomplete, but that shouldn't affect his status among his peers, right? Says Matthew. Joe, what says you? So I love this question from Matthew. I absolutely love I this question. <laughs> there are, yeah, Graham, I'm, my brand is becoming more and more known. And Graham, we're thinking more and more like, or at least you're reading my mind in more situations. So I love this question, mostly because I agree with pretty much every word that Matthew wrote, which is really why I like it so much. Matthew, I think you and I are on the same page here. So I, I will say, I'm not sure the beginning of Matthew's question necessarily aligns with the end, or or I'm not sure that the front of it is exactly how I would frame this. So the, the opening question is, does winning a World Cup really improve your status as a player or just improve your career as a whole? Now, I'm not really sure how much winning a World Cup improves your career in tangible ways. You know, maybe it provides different, you know, off-the-field opportunities. I, I do think, you know, winning a World Cup is pretty much just about status. So there is that part where maybe I'm, I'm not fully on board with what Matthew's saying, but the rest of it about, you know, Messi not needing, essentially to boil it down, Messi not needing to win a World Cup to be the greatest player of his generation, I think is 100% true. So the, the premise that I boiled it down to from Matthew's question is, you know, Messi's, and this is what Matthew says, ability as a player, 
puts him in that best player of his era conversation, not this World Cup win. That is how I would summarize the meat of what Matthew's saying, and I agree with every word of that. Basing a player's legacy off of one game or even a knockout tournament just seems silly to me. There are so many things outside of that player's control. If Messi had lost that World Cup final, putting in the performance that he did along the way to get them there and in that competition because Argentina couldn't defend or because they give up a goal in the set piece and you know that's not going to be Messi's fault. You know, does that make Messi a worse player? Absolutely not. Does that suddenly make him not the the best player of this generation? To my mind, at least, and a lot of this is subjective. No, the answer is no. Of course, Messi is still, for me, the best player before December 18th, 2022 and after December 18th, 2022. I don't think that the trophies necessarily matter. Maybe in some cases you can look at how a player got them there and how they performed over a longer series of games in a knockout tournament. But I think when we're talking about the greatest player of a particular era, we are always talking about narrative. And this is why after the World Cup, I was saying, you know, this cements it, right? For me, Messi was already there, but I think a lot of the discourse around the GOAT conversation or the best player of a particular era conversation, which is the one that Matthew's getting at here, which I think is is more nuanced, but still subjective and and narrative-based, I think when we're talking about those conversations, we are always talking about narratives. When we're talking about Messi post-World Cup final as well, we're almost exclusively talking about narratives and winning the World Cup, you know, like it or not, and, and whether it's logical or not, does a lot to tell a better story about the greatest player of all time or the greatest player of a generation than, you know, Messi crashing out and Argentina crashing out either in the group stage or, you know, losing that final to France. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Matthew is right that winning doesn't necessarily make you a better player or, or even just take the necessarily out of there. It doesn't make you a better player. There is, there is a difference between ability and achievements in, in all sports. So take Harry Kane, for example. He has never won a major honour as, 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 a, as a professional soccer player. But that doesn't make him a lesser player than if he had. If he wins the, what is it, 2019 Champions League final, in terms of Harry Kane's ability... I probably think of him in exactly the same way that I do now. So it's it's difficult to define. And this is where soccer is maybe a little bit, or sports in general, is is, is a little bit silly. Um, so Messi isn't any better as a player because Chiumeni missed a penalty kick in the World Cup final. Status, to, to address Matthew's question, status is difficult to define. And I guess uh, that did change somewhat by winning the World Cup in that I, I now think there's not any argument that he's the GOAT, whereas before maybe there was but then what is the criteria to define <laughs> right, right. Who, who is the greatest of all time so uh, yeah it's it's a difficult one what? it's 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 kind of like military medals right are you a better soldier because you have more medals not necessarily but they are a symbol of your accomplishments but just because you yeah. have you don't have those symbols or maybe it's like pokemon cards maybe messi <laughs> winning the world cup was like him getting a shiny mewtwo card which was a big deal for me as as a 10 year old or whatever but at, like, am I any worse as a Pokemon card collector if I don't have the shiny Mewtwo card? No, it's just down to luck and good fortune. It's it, it, Graham, I love this, right? It's all about perception, right? All of these conversations are about perception. I think about, let's, let's talk youth soccer for a second. Let's talk about like U13 soccer. You know, I could be playing on a team full of scrubs and being one of those scrubs. And on the other team, there could be a player who is just so clearly the best player on the field. He is miles away Miles ahead of where everyone else is. He's the greatest youth soccer Kai player in, in Phoenix. Kai Fotheringham <laughs> has lived in Phoenix. This is where he is now. He is the best. Somehow, despite that player scoring five goals in a game, our team full of scrubs manages to nick six goals on corner kicks by a miracle, a true miracle. 
you know, we win. We get the status. We get all of that stuff. None of us were the best player on the field. No one on on my team of scrubs was better than the Phoenix native Kai Fotheringham. So it, it just... That is such a logical way for me, at least, to think about this. That player was clearly, clearly the best. Everyone who was watching the game, everyone who was playing the game could tell that. They're the best regardless of whether their team wins or not. They're the ones that are going to get you know, whatever the recognition comes, whatever the, the, the next step comes from from the youth soccer level. They should be in that particular conversation as an individual. You know, It shouldn't be based off of whether or not they beat a team full of scrubs or not. But but at the same time, like it is like there is an element of of like to your point about Harry Kane or the five goals scored, like there is something of if you don't win that silverware, I do think it's a thing that is is immediately if we're discussing status. And you're right, I'm not talking about like you don't win the World Cup and therefore you level up in like goal scoring ability or something. But but I do think when it comes to how we remember players and how we talk about players, there's a shorthand to it and. Oh yeah, this guy like in the World Cup final he scored five goals even though they lost. Like that that you're right cuz that is like a herculean achievement. And I, but I think ultimately the the World Cup simplifies the conversation. Messi winning the World Cup it just makes it that whole goat conversation, a conversation I'm not that yeah. interested in having to begin with. And so it, it makes it just an easier thing to have because it's like, yeah, I think Messi's the goat and a year ago, it's, well, you know, I mean, Pele won the World Cup three times. Maradona won the World Cup. Messi's never won the World Cup. Now he has. Like, it's, it's just, it's a, it's, a, it's a knock against him that is no longer a knock against him. The question, though, is, Taylor, is that the right way to talk about players, right? And I think that's what Matthew's getting at, is, is judging them based off of World Cups, these, these individual knockout competitions, whether their team happens to win or not, and so many factors that are outside of their control, is that the right way to talk about players? Should we talk about them based off of status or not? I think the answer is no. That said, I yeah, do think so- a lot of that conversation is about status, right? There's, there's a difference in what I think should be done. And, and I guess sort of I think what we try to do is provide nuanced discussion here on TSS. There's a difference between what should be done and maybe what we try to do here on the show mm-hmm. and, and maybe how I would think about it. I, I think it's yeah. pretty clear that it shouldn't be that way, even though it, it probably is. Yeah, I, I agree with that, Joe. I think the answer is probably no, but then that requires a lot of re-hardwiring my own brain to discount. <laughs> I mean, even someone like Lionel Messi, who I think we can all agree, probably the best soccer player of all time, he has an advantage and that when he breaks through as a youngster, he's playing for Barcelona. So how much of his ability from a young age is down to the fact he's already playing for one of the best teams in the world he already has that team around him there's just so many different things to take into account and that's not me saying that we don't credit Messi for winning the World Cup and winning the Champions League and other players for winning major honours we just have a little bit of nuance in in um, evaluating other factors you know Kylian Mbappe scores a hat-trick in the World Cup final but because he loses that game doesn't make him any lesser of a player that would that's ridiculous to hold that against him it's just it's just maybe not being so absolute about everything yeah I mean, Joe to, to your question I think the nuance is the key because uh, like Graham you mentioned Franco, Franco Armani for a second like is he one of the best goalkeepers in the world because they won the World Cup? No, absolutely not. Like that that's that's not the way it should be. But I think if we were talking about this Argentina team in which Messi was a passenger or like played 10 minutes of the final and sort of the team won with Messi around, 
then I wouldn't say it, it does much in terms of the conversation or cements his legacy. But for me, that this team is built around Messi, that he is the star performer, that he shows up in those moments and scores those goals that you need to make it to the out of the group stage, to make it past that one opponent, to take that penalty and, and make it. It's the moments in the World Cup that lead to them winning. He becomes that player who scored five goals and won this time. And so for me, that yeah. that's the thing. It's how you win it. And when we look back at the 2022 World Cup, it will be Messi and Argentina won the World Cup, but Messi scored goals and had this great game and this amazing moment. And so I think that's where uh, I argue it it does sort of cement his legacy because it's him, in my mind, leading that Argentina team to yep. winning the World Cup title. Title? Medal? Whatever uh, it is. I also think... <laughs> yeah, trophy. There you go. Um, whatever, yeah. I, I, I do think generally, though... I mean, look, there's some dark corners of Twitter that don't adhere to this, but I think generally people are smart enough to assess with that nuance. So, for instance, Angel Di Maria, in, in terms of his career, has pretty much won everything. He's won titles in countless countries, won the Champions League num- numerous times. He's now a World Cup winner. And as good a player as he is, no one is putting him forward in, in the GOAT conversation because you assess his contribution throughout seasons in the biggest matches, and it just doesn't measure up to someone like Lionel Messi. So I do think people are generally smart enough to have that nuance when they're, nuance when they're, when they're, when they're making assessments ab- about players. I've got one more question because I, I love this conversation and I love this kind of conversation. So I do want to go back and ask both you, Graham and Taylor, about the example that Matthew gives us, right? So Erling Holland, if if Holland never goes to the World Cup, but continues to be this dominant for the next decade, you know, does not being in the World Cup, or or maybe he goes to the World Cup, but Norway just aren't good enough that they crash out in the group stage in our '86 team World Cup in the year 2040, because <laughs> Holland's still going to be kicking around at that point. Does that mean that he's not? in the same conversation that someone like Mbappe or Messi or whoever we might posit forward, whoever we might push forward in this conversation, like is Holland penalized by not being in those moments or, or his team not thriving in those moments? Not, not with regards to the World Cup, because I no longer believe, as good as the World Cup is, I don't believe it's the pinnacle of the sport as it sure. was decades ago. That, that conversation is maybe difficult if you're telling me about a player who doesn't qualify for the Champions League. And we, and we never see... I mean, Haaland is already playing in the Champions League, so it's hypothetical. I'm not talking about Ellen Haaland, but sure. this hypothetical player, if he's never testing himself against the very best in soccer, then I feel like I am being robbed of the evidence to yep. make a full assessment about that player. Yeah, I think, I think that, that, is, that is the case. It's not as though, like, ah, but he never played in a World Cup, so he's not good. It's more... Like, I I just don't think he is as permanently in that conversation. An example I would give, if George Best is born in England and not Northern Ireland and is part of that 66 team that wins the World Cup, George Best is in the conversation for greatest players of all time far more regularly because of what he did with Manchester United combined with winning a World Cup. But because I don't believe he ever goes to a World Cup, uh, certainly doesn't win one, like, I I don't think he gets as readily mentioned. And, like, I think Pushkash is maybe another example of that. Like, I think there is something about playing in a World Cup, having success in a World Cup that does... I think, like, if it doesn't cement your legacy, maybe that's the wrong way to put it. It cements the memory of you as a player, that you achieve things for club, you achieve things for this great team that won this. And and I do think that winning, uh, uh, like, silverware does sort of help people have that shorthand, rightly or wrongly, when they talk about a player, when they remember a player. Yeah. And, and at the core of this is the 
the difficulty in assessing individuals in a team sport, right? This this conversation doesn't happen in tennis, for example. Right. That is a much easier <laughs> conversation to have where it's 1v1, certainly in singles anyway. Whereas in soccer, that that is much, much trickier. So I'm not trying to say that achievements and trophies and titles don't matter. Of course they do. It's just in assessing individuals, it, it's a little bit difficult. It's yeah. a little bit nuanced. And my la- sorry, my last beat on this. I just think it, I think it's silly a little bit to say... You know, Holland doesn't have to play in the World Cup to be in the conversation to be the greatest of a generation, but Messi has to win the World Cup to be the greatest of a generation, right? I mean, it's just difficult, right? And I guess what I try to do to get all the way back to Matthew's question, which is, you know, really a question I think about, you know, how we think about players and how we talk about them and evaluate them. I think just the best practice in general, at least what I what I think, is to look at as broad of a sample as, as possible, right? You know, if if Holland suddenly he falls off a cliff and then he pops up at a World Cup, you know, 15 years from now and has a great tournament, but hasn't scored or really done anything to help a team in that gap. That doesn't that doesn't make him the best ever. And if Messi had crashed out of this World Cup based off of everything we've seen from his career, you know, he probably still is in that conversation, right? Nothing really should change, at least in my view, in terms of how we think about a player and their on-field ability based off of those kind of small moments that are just a blip in a much longer, more extensive career. I'm uncomfortable with my final thing I'm going to say, which is like a slight word of praise for Gianni Infantino because expanded World <laughs> Cup in 2026, decent chance we do Don't get do Norway. It. We might, I mean, Odegaard playing in yeah. balls for Erling Haaland at a World Cup in 2026. I feel like we might get that and I will be okay with it. Graham, Scotland might need to step mm. up their game a little bit. Well, Scotland are in Norway's group for the Euro qualifiers. Hibli. So I'm kind of hoping we're going to take, <laughs> take out uh, Haaland and Odegaard. Go. And yeah, that might not happen. <laughs> and and Kieran Tierney is already the greatest player of all time, right? Sure. I mean, Erling Haaland versus Super John McKinn's backside—that is Clash of the Titans, right there. <laughs> that's that's that's. <laughs> if those two things collide, that is an unstoppable force meeting an, is, an immovable it, object. Yeah, and literally. I don't know what will happen. Is that just going to collide? Like you know, if John McGinn's doing butts up and goal, like I'm struggling to figure out many other situations where that's going to really apply. I think Holland's just going to be peppering shots. Life on finds goal. a way, Joe. That's Life true. finds a way, and maybe that way in this case is butts up. That's all I'm saying. Indeed, I, I think the two are going to run into each other at full speed, and we're going to find out that that is what actually caused the Big Bang. Those yeah. two colliding is how the <laughs> Big Bang. The Large happened. Hadron Collider. Exactly. <laughs> that's what. That's what the next big experiment should be. Just have Erling Haaland <laughs> running into Super John McGinn's butt. That's where I thought that question was going to go. Matthew, thank you for that one. Uh, another one from Regina Sanders. Now that the World Cup is over, I want to get into club soccer. How do I pick a team? Graham, I will ask you for your thoughts first. But first, I will give my mm. one thought. Uh, we have had this question uh, in, at times in the past, usually after major competitions. And the number one thing that I have come to believe is do not pick a club team based on one player that you like because unless that player is going to be there forever and even if they are you might end up not liking them so much cough cough Ryan Giggs uh, then you basically have tied yourself to a team that when that player moves on do you follow that player or do you follow that team still even if they are no longer enjoyable because that player isn't there Uh, I think there are clubs like Fulham that have a long established history of having an American in or around their team that maybe you can support them because they have that that legacy uh but have like supporting a team because they've got that one american when that player moves on they don't anymore and now you're supporting a random team that you might not care that much about so that would be my one big piece of advice uh about how not to pick a team graham how should people be picking teams 
So from personal experience, I'd look for a team that is almost guaranteed never to win anything or amount to anything because oh being a soccer fan is not meant to be fun and that would give you the authentic experience. <laughs> okay, so if, if people wanted Become to a Albion fan. enjoy things and not be a Sterling Albion fan, uh-huh. I mean, yeah, maybe it is that. Maybe then you can go to Scotland, hang out with Graham, have a meat pie uh, and exist in misery. But if they don't want to exist in misery, Graham... <laughs> So I think there are two routes to go down if you're picking a team to support from scratch. So one is to go local. That's what I did, almost by accident, because as a teenager, there, there wasn't much else to do other than go to Albion games on, on a Saturday. But then as I became older, I started to appreciate the, the community of the club and how it was linked to my local area and then to me as an individual. And, and I guess that means something to me. So that is one route. The other route is to find something within a club that resonates with something within your personality. So that could be something political. Lots of football clubs have uh, leanings to certain political causes. That could be something that you identify with. It could be a style of play that you enjoy, although I would look into the clubs that play a traditional style of play. You know, Ajax, Barcelona, they're going to, generally speaking, going to they're going to play the same way over decades rather than tying it to an individual manager. That's kind of related to what you were saying, Taylor, with, a, with an individual player. You mentioned Fulham there. They've got a long history of Americans. That is something that you could, you could tie your own identity to. So basically... Something that you find something that you can identify with, that way you can establish a connection with a club when you maybe don't have that geographical proximity to it. Or, or you know, you could just pick the team that wins all the time. I've heard winning is fun, you yeah. could just do that. I, I have a buddy, uh, Thad, who chose to be a Manchester City fan, I think, like, even before like the Shinawatra days, because he's a UNC guy and he wanted a team that had UNC colors, so he went Ooh, with Man maybe. City. That has worked out well <laughs> for him. Uh, so I think it can also be that random yeah. of like, pick a, pick a color you like and see who wears be. that one and then see if that resonates. I also think if you're picking a team, you don't have to just go, uh, it's it's not like well I've I've met this person we've had one date and now we're getting married like you you can sort of see, you know feel it out see how that season goes and if you're really enjoying it if there's certain par- parts about the club you like then stick with it but if you find yourself being like man that other team is is way more fun and has a better personality then, then uh, hang out with that team for a while and then slowly uh, make your choice uh, Joe where are you on this one so the the first thing I always tell people when people ask me this question is go local if you can right going to games is awesome it's fun. Helps grow the sport. Uh, helps grow the sport. All of that stuff, you know, depending on where you live, that is easy or hard, right? So that's difficult to know without knowing a lot about you know, Regina and, and sort of what what that situation is. But go local if you can, and then if if you want to find a different team or if that's not practical, I, I agree with with what you guys are talking about. You know, finding something in a club that you identify with, right? Whether it's a personality who's you know a legend of the club, right, and, and maybe someone who's not around anymore. Or a style, which is, is sort of what draws me in, I think, maybe more than more than most. The MLS teams that I enjoy watching, now I, I wouldn't say I'm a fan of any of these MLS teams, but the fan of MLS teams I enjoy watching on any given year, you know, comes down to the reason why I like those teams comes down to how they play, right? And whether it's, it's actually a fun experience. They don't have to win, but I, I would like it to be fun. The other option that I will I'll put on the table is... You can take, there's two options here. You can take one of those which football club quizzes, you know, which Mm. football club are you quizzes (laughs) online. Uh, I took one this morning and apparently I'm Real Madrid, which I feel like is way off. But you know what? Maybe that's my my club that I'm (laughs) destined to support. The other option is there are flow charts that are floating around on Reddit. And and there's one, I believe, every year for Major League Soccer, which is, you know, which MLS team should I support? And there's like an 80 step flow chart. That is incredibly entertaining oh, to yeah. do, and I would recommend it to everyone. 
Um, it's a great time. You'll spend about 20 minutes doing it, and it'll be an entertaining 20 minutes. So, you know, go local. If you can't, maybe use a flowchart. That's what I got. It's always interesting with that flowchart, if you already have a team, to kind of trace sure. back how they got there and, like, begrudgingly accept it if you're a DC United fan. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, the, the one I'm looking at, stuff. Taylor. I'm trying to find. I'm trying to find yeah. DC United. Okay, you're like, in the, probably, the most immediate you umbrella. Winning? You're in. Yeah, it, it's how recent does the winning need to be? And if it's at yep. least 20 years ago, then you are good to go. Ha. <laughs> <laughs> huh. Yeah, I mean, I, I and I, but I really do think w- watch a bunch of games, see see what resonates, yeah. see what style resonates, see what color resonates, and, and then and then sort of go from there. But ultimately, yeah, go local because going to games is, is the best. Uh, the atmosphere, the whole stadium cheering when a goal happens, it's a pretty electric moment. So uh, yeah, go to go to at least one game if you can, Regina, and anyone else who's trying to make that big decision. Uh, three more questions still to get to back soon to do just that. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome back, Joe. This one for you from Kenneth Seiden. After her ACL injury, uh, Katarina Macario's ACL injury, will Vlatko have enough time to integrate Kat Macario and her unique playing style into the women's national team before the World Cup? Absolutely. I think he, I think he totally will, Kenneth. You know, the hope, and Vlatko said this, is that she'll be able to come back and start playing in February after that ACL injury. Now, there is a U.S. women's national team press conference in 25 minutes as we're recording now. So I'm guessing Vlatko will be asked about that, and I'm guessing we'll get some sort of an updated timeline on Katarina Macario after that. For folks who don't know who Katarina Macario is, she was a standout star at Stanford, uh, now is a member of the U.S. Women's national team has 17 caps for the U.S. already at senior level. She plays for Lyon over in France, is phenomenal. She is an unreal attacker. She can play pretty much anywhere. She could be a number eight. She could be a winger. But where Vlako has sort of transitioned into using her is as a false nine, essentially, as the best, uh, the best false nine certainly that the U.S. has in the pool and one of, if not the most skillful attacker the U.S. has in tight spaces. She'll drop in and combine. She'll release the wingers and behind. She's phenomenal, and she could be a difference maker for this U.S. team. Yeah. Now, it is difficult because there is Alex Morgan, who is still producing at an elite level. I think this past year for Alex Morgan in 2022 was probably the best year of her career when you factor in how well she did in San Diego in the NWSL and and how well she did for the U.S. on the international level, at least in the CONCACAF W Championship and some games leading up to that. So there is a position battle there, and there is a chance that Macario sees some minutes in other spots because she's more versatile than Alex Morgan is. But I, I think, really, with what the U.S. struggles to do, which is to break teams down and to create in possession... 
Macario is the number one on my depth chart, assuming she can get back up to full speed. So I don't fully know what the ACL timeline looks like, but given that she has almost 20 caps, given that she started five games at the beginning of 2022, uh, over the course of those five games between some friendlies and She Believes Cup, she did play with Sophia Smith and and uh, Mallory Swanson, who is uh, Mallory Pugh got married to baseball star Dansby Swanson, now Mallory Swanson. That's going to take some getting used to, but she's played with Smith, she's, she's played with Swanson. Lavelle and Haran are the two you know starting number eights for Vlaco right now. She's played with those players as recently as, as last year. It shouldn't be too hard to integrate her back into this team. And I, I desperately hope for the U.S. women's national team's sake that she is back soon because I think the U.S. need help doing exactly what Katarina Macario does. Yeah, it is important that she is integrated back into the squad. There certainly is time, and Joe, you covered that in terms of the, the, the time frame of her, her recovery being put at two months. And obviously that still leaves about four months until the first game of, of the, the, the World Cup on the 22nd of July. I believe, but Joe, we we covered a, a lot of this around the England friendly yep. and the issues that Vlatko was having with that squad and what needs to be resolved before the US head out to Australia and New Zealand later this year. And there were kind of two key areas. One was one was the midfield and the other one was a spark in the attack. And yep. I actually think they're kind of linked in terms of breaking teams down, as you mentioned, making things happen. And Macario was one of the players that, that, that can do that. She is a difference maker. The US need difference makers. Vlatko has called her the future of the team in the past and at the moment there is a nervousness that this transition this generational transition isn't going to happen before the world cup in july that is the the, that's the point that's the stage that this u.s team is at right now obviously the competition seems to be higher now around the world particularly in europe ahead of that tournament but macario if she finds top form is one of the players that could help bridge that gap so not only do i think there's enough time i think vlatko and really everyone involved with U.S. soccer and at club level as well should be putting everything into getting Macario back into, uh, into best shape. So what I'm hearing is Katarina Macario, very good, should be there. Answered. Well done, fellas. Uh, Graham, that's the TLDR. There yep. you go. There you go. I did it. I did it. It was all me. Uh, Graham, from David Beffert. Next one. Uh, this one, I feel like, could be an episode unto itself. We'll see how long we go. Yes. I love it. I love this one so much. Oh, my gosh. Me too. I thought about it way too hard for way too long. A yo-yo club in England comes to you and wants you to become their GM. Their goal is to become a solid mid-table team in the Premier League. They are able to boost investment, but only a modest amount. What's your path or strategy to succeeding? So I am hiring Sean Deitch, and I'm oh buying boy. him all the worms he could ever want or need. Um, to, that's that's included in his contract offer. Oh, Graham. Alternatively, I'm it. giving the Saudis or the Qataris a call and seeing if they've got any cash that they're not using at that particular time that, oh I, that I could borrow. No, to, to be to be serious Graham. for a moment. So yes, this is a question from David that we could have spent we could have spent an hour on. And so I've kind of narrowed into one particular thing that I would do. So I'd look to undervalued markets to get the most for my, for my money. So I'd stay away from signing players in the Premier League and even championship clubs. You look at what players are going for in the championship, and I don't think there's a huge amount of value there at the moment. So you're not getting much bang for your buck in those markets. Instead, I'm looking to MLS and... To, to completely be self-indulgent here, I'm also looking to the Scottish Premiership. So there are plenty of examples of players good enough to make that step who I reckon between those two leagues would cost under £2 million each. 
And I reckon with the right manager and a coherent approach to building a team, which you would get with Sean Dyche, maybe it wouldn't be particularly attractive. Maybe you're not Manchester City, you're not Pep Guardiola, but nonetheless, he's got a track record of keeping teams in, in the Premier League. I reckon you could build a team from scratch using £30 million, targeting only MLS and Scottish Premiership players. And I think those players would be good enough, as I say, if you if you had the right manager and built Whoa. a coherent team, they'd be good enough to stay up in the Premier League. I'm talking about a team, 11 players, that maybe not the squad. That is a sizzling take right there, Graham. I love it. You, 30 million for 11 players? That's like nothing. That's no money. That's less yep, than I three per player. <laughs> yep, I think you could do it. I mean, I'm maybe relying that. on about five or six from Scotland. But yeah, I think you could do that with that amount of money. For 11 it. players, you weren't, you're not getting a full squad out of that, but for 11, sure. All right, I, I'm not sure, Graham, thus far, like, we're, we're going to let you know. That, that, that's what I think the, the, uh, the okay. ownership Wait. responds. It's like, you know, we, we appreciate you coming in. You gave us some stuff to think about. So, Joe, they're coming to you now. Uh, what's your pitch? Well, my, my first, the first part of my pitch is a, a question for Graham. Graham, as I go through mine, which is very similar to yours, just without the $30 million thing, would you try to build that 11? It doesn't have to be 30, right? You, you can ha- we'll give you some wiggle room. I just want to know what that 11 is and sort of what that budget would look like. You don't have to build the whole thing, but maybe like <laughs> give, me, give me a little taste of what that could look like because I love that idea so much. Oh, and yeah. I did tie okay. into some of those things. Um, so Graham- So here's, here's examples. So Lewis Ferguson, right, has just gone to Bologna in Italy. He is now shining in Serie A sure. for Bologna. I think he cost about 1.5 million. Josh Doig, also shining in Italy and uh, with Verona, he cost about eight hundred thousand. So from the Scottish Premiership, it is it is very easy for me to pick like five or six players okay. that I think are good enough for the Premier League that would cost under three million pounds. MLS, I'd need a little bit more time Fair to enough. go through Fair that enough. entire league and and pick out players. But yeah, for sure, like Ryan Kent is a player who could easily perform at Premier League level. He's out of contract at the end of the season, so I'm yeah, picking that's him up the one. For, for a Joe, start. That's Joe, can I ask one. a question really quickly, just jumping in? Yeah, please. Of those three names you mentioned, that Graham just mentioned, like, how confident are you that they're all definitely real footballers and not people that Graham just made up? <laughs> they're all left-backs. Only, I'm only confident because Graham said so. That's why. Okay. That's the only reason okay. I'm confident. I just trust Graham's hardwired <laughs> like, football knowledge. That's all it is, Taylor. But it's a fair I question. Would, I would respect the hustle uh, if Graham just started making up Scottish names. It was like, uh, Alexander McMacintosh. Yeah. He was 1.5 Angus McColgan. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Angus McColgan is having a great season in Croatia this exactly. year. I believe it. I believe it. I love it, Graham. I do. So my my idea is very similar to Graham in a lot of ways. So I don't have a specific manager uh, in mind. Sean Deitch is, is a fun pick. I love the worms shout there. My first step is to develop systems that apply to the entire club, right? So one's that will govern how things are done in a macro kind of way. There's a bunch of those, I'm sure, that, that you would try to put in place and ones that clubs do. The ones that will relate, relate specifically to the field, or at least a couple of those, is style of play. So having a philosophy as a club that is not tied to a manager, I think that is helpful. You know, Not essential to winning, but I think it is very, very helpful. You think about a club like Tottenham right now that have gone from Pochettino, who played one way, to Mourinho, who played another way, to Nuno, and now to Con- I mean, it's a lot of somewhat continuity I guess in the later stages of that but you know there's no Tottenham idea of how they want to play soccer which makes my second system very difficult to implement so that that second bit is recruitment which is what Graham talks about that's I think the most fun part of soccer in so many different ways that's why the transfer windows are so much fun so having a unified and, and sort of specified approach to recruitment based on the style of the club right based off of how we want to play Conte really never fit in, uh, shoot, like a sorry Chelsea team or a Tuchel Chelsea team 
or even a Potter Chelsea team because those teams want to pass the ball. And Conte's not super good at, at passing the ball, at least breaking teams open with his passing. But he was phenomenal when, when Conte is there at, at Chelsea. And so there is a difference there. So having a style that governs recruitment, I think, is helpful. Other things like age and, and skill set and level, like where they're coming from, and then the financials, which, which Graham talked about a little bit there. I want to get the most bang for the buck, right? Whoever this benevolent owner is that's sort of benevolent but not that benevolent because they're not giving us that much money, Shopping markets that are are not quite as pillaged yet, and so therefore the, the prices aren't as high. The U.S. is an obvious one. Scotland, I love that shout, Graham. League 2, Ligue 2, comes to mind for me in France with the amount of talent that they produce. And then other second divisions around Europe recently relegated teams as an area that MLS teams are starting to shop from. We see LAFC sign Dennis Bowanga from Saint-Étienne, who were relegated from Ligue 1 to Ligue 2. He comes in in that, that summer window to LAFC last season, because those recently relegated European teams, even in top five leagues, need to offload salaries. They, they need to cut back. And so taking advantage of some of those unfortunate situations for those clubs, for my club now in the Premier League, is exactly what I want to do. So that's the next so step. I have set... Go ahead, Graham. Tony, go, Joe. Okay, just the last bit. is Regardless of whether we stay up or not, I think clubs overreact in soccer. And I know it's difficult when you drop from the Premier League to the Championship because you lose a bunch of money. But clubs overreact and make wild changes that are not based in logic or critical thinking. So also establishing metrics that we're going to base our own success on that are not just tied to the table, which has an element of randomness. I think everybody who's watched soccer would, would have that sense inside themselves. You know, did we do well, actually? Were we lucky? Were we unlucky? And then, you know, tweak some things as you need to. It's not like the philosophy can ever change. But I think between systems and style and recruitment and then evaluation, I think that's how I would generally speaking, approach this yo-yo situation. So I went into Transfer Market and I set the search filter for MLS to 4 million euros, which equates to about 3 million pounds. Let me tell you, there's quite a lot of players that I reckon would be good enough for the Premier League. So Jacob Glasnes is in there, Keaton Parks, Jeremy Abobese, um, who else is in there? Jack McGlynn is 3 million euros, valued at 3 million euros. Walker Zimmerman is in there. Uh, Matthias Pellegrini. Nope. Rodolfo Pizarro, is he nope. still in? I mean, he was Skip. good in Liga Mekes, but I don't even know if he's still at Inter Miami. But anyway, Graham, oh, there's, there's a, a few good players in right here. Now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, Graham, I think I think you could get close, right? Between, and this is also just, again, transfer fees. We talked about this yesterday. That doesn't factor in salary, all that stuff, blah, blah, blah. No one cares. But I do think you could get a lot of bargain buys from Scotland and, and the US. I think you could probably make... And 11, you can make an 11 with 11 players for $30 million in transfer fees. Whether that 11 with Jeremy Abobasi as their starting number nine and Keaton Parks, who hasn't made it through a full season in quite some time, as you know, one of your number eights, that's the jury's out, let's say, on that one. The jury's out. You need some good coaching. You, you need would. a lot of worms. Yeah, you need a lot of worms. <laughs> buckets and buckets full of worms. I mean, how expensive can worms be? I feel like that is, if, if you have a, fro- a frugal owner, maybe that does end up uh, putting you over the top. We could afford worms, if not a Ballon d'Or winner. Uh, Joe, uh, my answer was... I'll ask my barber. <laughs> there you go. Perfect. Uh, Joe, my answer was strikingly similar to yours. I think uh, the bubble team uh, dynamic tends to mean that you're like scarcity brain thinking. You're just trying to solve things so that you can stay up for as long as you can. I don't really think that that gives you success long-term. I think if anything, it probably hurts you long-term because you end up with this mishmash of players and styles, as you said. So basically, I, I, my approach would be, 
I can guarantee you mid-table status in five years. And then it's about, uh, as you said, uh, I, I, like coming up with an identity. That is how we're going to play, yep. regardless of who the, the manager is. I think that is step one. I think uh, your ideas about recruitment also make a lot of sense to me. But the, the main one would be that once you have that identity, then the entire academy can be structured around like developing players yeah, to fit into that call. style. And that, to me, is a thing that so few Premier League clubs do or do well is have an academy that reflects the style of the team because so many clubs are sacking managers after a season or two seasons or three seasons that you can't build that level of continuity. And I think having an academy that is training players to play that way that you're going to play at senior level, but then also having an academy that has scouts in areas uh, like Graham, you talked about the U.S. I would say Japan is where I would send you scouts. Ecuador seems to kind of consistently turn out yeah. like a couple really good players every single year, and and I think finding those undervalued areas as well for active players, senior players, but also for youth products to come through. Uh, that that would be another one for me. So it's basically what Joe said, but add in an, a strong emphasis on the academy. Yeah, I mean, countries like Ecuador in particular, I, I did their, their preview for the World Cup. The the youth academies in that country are, as you say, are just churning out um, excellent young players. So despite the fact that Enzo Fernandez is or isn't going for 127 million euros in this window from Benfica to Chelsea, there there is still value in the transfer market. It's just about, I often think it's about overcoming stigma as much as anything else. I think that's where MLS in particular has made a lot of progress. I think clubs, it's now more acceptable for them to go and spend their money in MLS rather than countries like Portugal and the Netherlands. So just overcome that stigma and you can have a Premier League team for £30 million. Give me, give me a call, uh, Nottingham Forest. <laughs> I, I like Graham's pitch. Uh, my, so my like summarised pitch would be basically we're just going to talk a lot about how we're developing uh, players to play this like identified style, and it will basically be an IX knockoff. Uh, but but then we are the new IX, <laughs> the cheaper IX. So if you want technically well-rounded, proficient players, you come to us, not IX, and then you sell one Enzo Fernandez for a hundred million pounds. Suddenly, you got some money to play with, and, and now we're we're in the green, we're in mid table, we're coming for you. Lords of worms. We're gonna win everything. It's gonna be great. I love it. Sounds good. <laughs> all right. Uh, final I'll question invest. then. I'm glad that we solved it. Uh, we're we're going to all get GM spots. It's going to be epic. Final question uh, comes from Zach Lippert. Do you all collect soccer paraphernalia apparel stuff for fun? Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> if so, what's your most prized or favorite thing you've collected? If not, what would you like to collect if you had space, time, or money? Uh, Joe, since we, I think we know Graham's answer. Joe, I'm coming to you first. Yeah, so I don't collect a lot of soccer paraphernalia or apparel or, or any of that stuff. I would like to collect more of it. I would like to to be around long enough that sort of I, I accumulate some of it over time. I'm not sure I'll ever reach Graham status, but I, I've gathered a few things over the years, but I wouldn't say I collect it for fun. I'd like to do more of that. So the best thing I have is a DDA Drogba Phoenix Rising bobblehead which I think the longer I hang on to it, the more obscure that's going to be. I mean, that's the kind of thing you see on eBay, like 50 years from now, if eBay still exists and we're still on this planet. And you think, wow, like that, that was a real thing that happened. And then you go look it up on Wikipedia, if that still exists. And and you remember, oh yeah, DDA Drogba did play for Phoenix Rising. So that's, that's the best one I have. I have a couple of jerseys. I have a 
the bobbleheads will be in charge in 50 years. It'll be like small soldiers. Ideally. So, I mean, Drogba feels like a really good one to have in that situation. And for him to be on my <laughs> side as well feels feels good. So, I don't know. I have a few other things. I have a few jerseys. Not not anything to rival Graham's collection, Taylor. I've seen your scarf collection, if nothing else. I have a couple of scarves, and it's, it's nothing to rival yours. But, you know, you guys had a bit of a head start. So, I'm hoping that I can sort of catch up over time. All right. So, Joe is uh, is looking to catch up over time. Joe, is there one thing, though? Is there one piece of, like, soccer uh, paraphernalia, whatever it may be, that you uh, you particularly enjoy that you have? Yeah, it's the, it's the Drogba bobblehead, for sure. No doubt. Okay. Word, word. Uh Weird, weirdly, my answer is also a bobblehead. Uh, Graham, let's talk about your shirt collection for a moment. <laughs> okay, so in terms of my favorite shirt or my most prized shirt, I, I think I've said this before on the on the show. I might have been asked this question before, but my favorite soccer jersey is the the black mid nineties My United shirt that Eric Cantona kung fu kicked the racist in at uh, Selhurst mm-hmm. Park. Not the exact one, of course, not the one, not the match worn one yes. that he actually wore, but wore, but the, the same design. And uh, yeah, it's probably the most expensive one I've bought as well. It wasn't particularly cheap, so that that one doesn't get washed for fear that it will fall apart. It is uh, like twenty years old at this, or almost twenty years old. Uh, no, more than twenty years old at this point. Um, another thing I love, I actually showed it on the TSS Plus Patreon page last week, which is the football type books that I have. So they're collectible in that there's only a few hundred of them that they were made. And they are beautiful coffee books all about fonts and typefaces of football jerseys through the years. I still can't believe that they made not one, but two versions of those because I didn't think there was anyone nerdy as me about that sort of stuff. So they will have pride of place in my office when I get around to putting up shelves and stuff like that in 2023. Maybe that'll happen this year. And then my third thing I'd no- I would uh, note is, and this might be slightly indulgent, but... I had a reported piece once make the front page of the New York Times sports section. It was about Celtic and Rangers in relation to the Scottish independence referendum in 2014. And so I have a copy of that framed. And I I was thinking of things that I would be gutted if there was a fire and I lost things in in the fire. So I'd be pretty gutted if I lost that. Um, and And if I had the money to collect anything to address the second part of Zach's question... If I had the money to collect anything soccer related, it would be shirts, obviously, but worn by players for iconic moments or matches. And I mean the actual shirts. You know how I said that it was the, the same design as the Cantona one. I'd want the actual shirt that Cantona wore for that moment. So I'd want the the, the, the jersey that Zidane wore for the headbutt, Messi's shirt from the 2022 World Cup final, the shirt Baggio wore when he missed the penalty. You know, you get the sort of the idea, that sort of thing. Basically, I'd want the greatest soccer jersey collection in history, which I guess isn't too surprising. You're on your way, that's Graham. That's what I'd shoot for. You're on your way. Graham, <laughs> I'm on my way, yeah. Graham, we got to get you out of Scotland, man. Like, the greatest soccer moments in history are Messi winning the World Cup, but then Baggio missing a penalty and two incidents of violent conduct. Like, like n- not not a beautiful goal, <laughs> not like uh, like uh, Maradona's dribble through the defense, anything like that. It- it's, it's, it's violence and missed penalties. Graham, it should be all the moments that you collect should be ones that specifically went against England, like the Maradona Hand of God <laughs> yes. jersey, oh, yes. the there Harry Kane, the there Harry Kane go. 2022 World Cup penalty jersey that he oh, tried to become yeah. a field goal kicker on. I mean, you could come up with a long list of this, I'm sure. Semione shirt from the 1998 World Cup. Wheels are turning, oh, folks. Oh. I like this. <laughs> oh, the one I want to get so badly now and give to Ryan Bailey. Was it Sterling or Saka who got horse-collared by Chiellini? Or somebody it else? It was... 
Saka, I believe. Saka, I think. I, want, I think it was Saka. I want to give Ryan jer- Ryan that jersey because he will appreciate it, a game-worn England jersey, but also knowing that that, that moment happened in that jersey, I feel like will make him furious. <laughs> and, then, and, and, also, and also that Chiellini has touched ah. it. Yep. Yep. That you will, give you give Graham really the Chiellini jersey. Give Graham, yep. the, Graham the Chiellini jersey and give Ryan the soccer jersey. And then Taylor, you and I just sit back and enjoy the ride. <laughs> Solved it. I need, I'm going to buy Ryan a Chiellini jersey. That's going to happen. Uh, I I do have a lot of <laughs> scarves behind me. You're not wrong, Joe. I don't really collect scarves. They, I've more so like accumulated them. If anything, uh, some of them were gifts. So I've like a few of them I purchased. Uh, but one of my like favorite uh, pieces. That I like soccer related things that I own uh, is a Galatasaray scarf that was given to me by a I'm going to assume pretty drunk Galatasaray fan uh, when they won the title when we were there. Uh, my wife and I were out in the streets uh, celebrating, and and I knew like oh, wow. one song that I had like similar to ABBA learning all their songs phonetically. None of them spoke English. I learned like one song phonetically, but could sing the entire song, and I sang it. And the guy freaked out that an American knew the song and gave me his scarf. And then I learned that it was from Sekyumruk, <laughs> uh, which is the Communist Supporters Society of Galatasaray. So yeah. it has, uh, I think, Hakan Shuker. On one side, an image of him, and on the other side is Che Guevara. So that, that's a pretty uh, great scarf. And similarly, uh, the bobblehead that I also cherish is a Hassan Shash bobblehead from his time with Galatasaray. Weirdly, with long flowing hair, which I guess he did have briefly, more famously uh, had a, a fully shorn head. So I, I like those two pieces of memorabilia. And then I do also have... Uh, the Manchester United record uh, that they put out, We All Follow Man United, where they're standing on what appears to be a baseball pitch. It is not glamorous, uh, and but they've got the sharp jerseys on, and it's them. I think I think there's Wee Gordon Strachan in there, uh, and it's them singing We All Follow Man United. So uh, th- that would be maybe the third piece of memorabilia that I, I enjoy having. And and how many times a day do you play that record, Taylor? <laughs> I mean, uh, right when I wake up and then uh, before I go to bed and also anytime sure. I eat a meal and then just anytime I'm existing. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly more times than the Glazers have ever played that record. I'm pretty sure they don't own that. I wonder if the Glazers know that there are Manchester United songs. Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> well, they don't know there's fans. So. They'd probably play like <laughs> – I I fully expect like one of their ideas to have been like you know Liverpool have this you'll never walk alone song can we just take that and do that ourselves that feels like a suggestion that probably was made at some point and made somebody have an aneurysm I love that yesterday's show ended with Taylor bemoaning the Glazers and today's show is on a similar path at the moment well <laughs> buckle up buddy because this week's big thing episode is about Saudi Arabia oh. and I'm really just resigning myself to uh, to that takeover happening at some point in the near future, either Saudi or otherwise. So, uh, yeah, the, the the time of bemoaning one ownership group uh, could soon be at an end, but uh, very much against the next ownership group as well. But traditions are traditions, Joe. You got you to gotta speak ill of the Glazers whenever you can. Oh, yeah. Got to. Uh, Got to. On that note, uh, anything else uh, for Zach's question? Just I want more bobbleheads, I guess. That's kind of where I landed. And I want more shirts. More shirts, uh, more insulting things for Ryan, and more bobbleheads for Joe. Graham, thank you very much uh, for helping answer all of the many Willister questions today. Thank you, Mr. Talkwell. <laughs> Joe Lowry, the same to you, my friend. Yeah, right back at you, Taylor. And listeners, thank you all very much for joining us. We will talk to you all again tomorrow.
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.